Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, I'm Pastor Tony, and it's my privilege this morning for, uh, to, to bring to you our, our next in the series, series in Revelation that we're calling Divine Intervention. Taking a look in the first two chapters of the, or in the second and third chapter, I'm sorry, the second and third chapter of Revelation, where John is dictating a letter, a letter from Jesus that includes seven messages to seven churches. And today we take a look at the fourth in that series of messages. It's a message to the church at a place called Thyatira. Thyatira, if you took a look at where these seven churches are located, they're kind of in an arc, and and Thyatira is the middle church geographically. It's also the middle message of the seven messages, and it's the smallest city of the seven. Archaeologists tell us that, that the others were more populous at the time, and yet this is the longest of the seven messages And Thyatira is known during the first century in the textile industry. The most prominent guild of the, uh, in Thyatira is the the guild of those who dyed cloth. Uh, You may be a little bit familiar because uh, Thyatira is mentioned in at least, I think, one other uh, occasion in, in Acts, there's a seller of purple cloth named Lydia. This is her hometown. And she helped plant the church in Philippi, but her job was the seller of purple cloth, presumably cloth that was dyed and produced in her hometown of Thyatira. So there's some connections if it sounds familiar. We want to take a look at this, and it's in Revelation chapter 2, and it starts with verse 17, and it goes through the end of the chapter. Let's take a look at this, this message from Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing even more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over all the nations. And the one, that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Lord, we pray, would you give us ears this morning to hear. Amen. So this, by now, if you've been following with us in this series, you're recognizing there's a familiar format to these letters, right? It starts, like most of them do, it starts with an identification of who's saying this. This isn't John simply writing down some ideas he had. This is John taking dictation of a message from Jesus himself. We know that because he identifies himself as the one with eyes of fire and feet of bronze. That language is exactly the language that's used earlier in chapter one. So if you were to hear this letter as it was originally written, the original readers or hearers of this letter would, might have heard it all in one sitting, in one reading. And if you were like that, you would have heard just a couple of paragraphs ago this same line, eyes of fire and feet of bronze, that identifies Jesus. So immediately we go, okay, these are Jesus' words, not, not just any old message to the church in Thyatira. And the first thing he says to the church is, I know your deeds. So, is, is that good news or bad news? Right? Is Jesus saying, I know your deeds? Or is he saying, I, I, I know your deeds? I know. I, I'm reminded of the title of a movie. It's a movie I never saw, but they, they uh, promoted it so widely, and I can't forget the name of the movie. It was out, I don't know, a decade ago, or maybe even more than that. The movie was called, I Know What You Did Last Summer. And it was not a comedy. It was obviously kind of a horror thing, like, like I, I know what you did. And sometimes we hear Jesus say here, I know your deeds. And we think some of the deeds that he knows, I wanted to keep hidden. I kind of like to hide some of those things. I, I don't want you to know some of the things that are in my heart. And in fact, I don't even want you to know some of the things that I've done because it's sin. And sometimes it's easy to think, I don't want Jesus to know all my sin. That's, that's embarrassing. But, but of course, he knows my sin even better than I do because he bore my sin on the cross. 
right? How could he not know? Of course he knows our deeds, right? What kind of God would it be if it's like, well, I know there's a guy named Tony Rognes, but, ah, you know, I wonder what he's up to. No, this is the one. The one who knows our deeds is the one who paid the price for our sin, purchased our pardon. So, of course, he knows our deeds. And what does he say after that? He says, I know your deeds. And he doesn't immediately go, I know your deeds, and, and, and here's the stuff you should be ashamed of. No, he starts on the other side of the ledger, if you will. What does he know? He says, I know of your love. I know of your faith. I know of your service, and I know your perseverance. One of those four uh, service jumped out at me. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to go with our uh, confirmation students. And in confirmation, we're studying the, the Apostles' Creed, and, and one of the things about this time of year we get to is that, that, that statement, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. So we, we took some of the confirmation students to some other churches to see how other churches in the body of Christ experience life in the body of Christ as a part of the Christian church. And one of the churches we went to, very ornate, and it had in the tile in the floor, it had imagery of different virtues. And one of those virtues was service. You know what the image was for service? It was a candle. So the question came up, why a a candle to represent service? The person who was giving the tour said, well, a candle represents service. Because if a candle is going to do what a candle is supposed to do, it gets used up. Right? Right? A candle can't give light unless it gets used up. When we moved to West Fargo a year and a half ago, Cindy and I were cleaning out the drawers in our, in our dining room buffet. And one of, the, one of the things that we got was a package, very nicely wrapped package that had two candles in it that were given as a gift. And they were perfect, beautiful candles. The only reason they were perfect is because they'd never been lit. They'd never given light to anything. Well, it's kind of nice, but what good is a candle that never gives light? But to give light, it must get used up. Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, I know your service. I know that you use yourself up for the benefit of others. And I know your love for one another, and I know of your faith, and I know of your perseverance, and I know that you're even more that way now than you used to be. What would it be like to hear that? You're even better at that than you used to be. 
I'm afraid our tendency is sometimes that we're really good at stuff when it's new and fun and interesting and, and we haven't been doing it for a long time. But the longer we do something, the more likely our tendency is to just kind of not pay as much attention anymore. And Jesus says to the church in Thyatira, you're even better at that than you were before. That's awesome. Oh, Triumph, would we hear that? Would that be true of us? That whatever was to our credit last week or last month or last year or 10 years ago, whatever was to our credit, would we be even better at that today than we used to be? Wow, that would be great. What a message to hear if you're living in Thyatira. What a wonderful message if we would hear that today, triumph. And then, that what is now becoming a fairly familiar phrase in, each, in, in almost all of these, and all of them so far, there's this phrase, nevertheless, I have this against you. To the one who knows my deeds, I kind of figured that was coming. Right? Don't we kind of know if he knows my deeds and love and perseverance and service? He, yeah. I have this against you. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel. Interesting. You, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel. Who is this Jezebel? Well, first of all, most likely her name isn't Jezebel. Jezebel, uh, the most well-known Jezebel, maybe the only known Jezebel, perhaps, is the wife of King Ahab. And you can read about her in 1 Kings. Jezebel is known for being a conniving, murderous, evil, deceitful queen. And I'd love to hear, if any of you know of a little girl named Jezebel, I'd be curious to hear about it, because I've never heard of anybody, because today that name is synonymous with kind of evil. And in the first century, that name would have been synonymous with evil. And so it's probably not her name. It probably is a reference to her character and her activity. But whether it's her actual name or not, n- nobody in the church in Thyatira had to, had to be told who it was. They would have most likely all gone, yeah, yeah, we know her. She's probably the one some of them went, yeah, we, we kind of look the other way when we see the stuff that she does. Or maybe they would have said, yeah, we, we kind of talked to each other about how we wish she wasn't around, but 
But there she is. Maybe they even said, well, you know, what? You know, where would she be if we just told her not to come back? We don't want to do that. So we just kind of look the other way. I don't know what all those people in Thyatira thought when they heard, I have this against you, you tolerate this Jezebel. But I do know because we're told in here what Jezebel does. And she's calling, she calls herself a prophet. She is in the church. She's not outside the church teaching something that's different from the church. She's inside the church drawing people away telling them you can stay inside the church and still worship some idols. That's what this this meat and and, and sexual immorality is about. She says, the, the, the word of God says that she entices people to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to sexual immorality. Both of those are interesting to me because if you remember from our series in Acts or if you've read in Acts, there's this event where Peter is sitting on the rooftop and he has this vision of all kinds of different foods being laid in front of him. And Jesus essentially telling him that all of this is okay to eat. So so what's the problem? Well, the problem isn't the meat. The problem is that that is meat that's a part of ritual idol worship. So idol worship in Thyatira would have been, we have this idol that we're going to worship, so let's worship this idol as if it were God. We'll build an altar. We'll sacrifice the way we do to God we'll sacrifice, and then we'll celebrate the the worship of this idol. And as a part of our worship celebration, the food of the worship celebration will be the meat from the sacrifice. And the activity of the worship celebration will be sexual immorality. That's the party games, if you will. That's the way they would celebrate the worship of idols. And and Jezebel is telling people in the church, you can do this. That's okay. You can worship something else as if it's God and it'll be fine. And she's leading people astray. You remember when Jesus was confronted with a woman who'd been caught in adultery? They brought the woman in front of him, said she's been caught in the act of sexual immorality. What are you going to do? And once everyone had left, Jesus looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. So so why does Jezebel get such a bad rap? Well, of course, Jezebel gets such a bad rap because... Because she's unrepentant. The word says, I've given her time to repent. 
And she is unwilling. Present tense, she is unwilling. Please understand, God is a God who offers us the opportunity to repent. The best news of all is that there's an opportunity to repent. And the saddest part of the whole story is that Jezebel is unwilling. And because Jezebel is unwilling, then sin has consequences. And God is going to allow the consequences of sin in our lives. Why? Because he wants us to repent. Not to punish us, as some of us think, although certainly it's going to feel like punishment. But God wants us to repent. And the consequences of sin often draw us to that. Some of you can attest to that in so many personal ways that it was the consequences of sin that eventually brought you to know forgiveness and grace and mercy. And in that sense, it's beautiful, even though it is so difficult and seems so extreme. The imagery that you see as as the video introduces each segment of this series is from Roman or from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And, and it's in a letter just, it, just past this one where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's the imagery. To Jezebel, he says, I'm giving you an opportunity to repent. And he gives us the same opportunity. In fact, to those who have been led astray, he says specifically to to those of you, you will experience the consequences of sin unless you repent. The invitation is there. So if you're one who's here this morning, And you feel a little bit in your heart of hearts like, ah, there are some things that I wish Jesus didn't know about me. There are some things that if it was made public, I'd hide my face. If you haven't brought those to Jesus in confession and repentance, Jesus says, here's the opportunity. And then there are those in the church who who haven't fallen into this trap, this Jezebel trap of of worshiping idols. And, And he says to them, to the rest of you, to those of you who who have not been a part of what she's teaching, what does he tell you? What does he tell us? 
He says, hold on to what you have until I come. Hold on to grace. Hold on to mercy. Hold on to forgiveness. The old hymn writer says, he writes, I will cling to the old rugged cross. The disciples told Jesus, Jesus, where else are we going to go? Indeed, hold on. I'm coming. Not as soon as you'd like me to, but hold on until I come. Hold on to the cross, to forgiveness. Because there we find grace and mercy. And in repentance, we find forgiveness. From even the ugliest stuff, to those who have ears, to, to you, if you have ears, hear what Christ has to say to us, the church.